Welcome to today's audio podcast from the Church at Bushland. If you enjoy the teaching ministry of the Church at Bushland and would like to enjoy more resources and weekly updates, we hope you will visit our website at thechurchatbushland.com or download our app for both iOS and Android devices by searching for The Church at Bushland. We'd love to know how this ministry is touching your life. Please take a moment to let us know by emailing us at media at thechurchatbushland.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting thechurchatbushland.com slash give. So uh, we're going we're gonna to spend, we're just going to jump right into the text uh, here in Daniel. I want to set the table a little bit. So, so Nebuchadnezzar was in southern Mesopotamia, um, and you, you remember that from your from paying attention when you were a kid, and you kind of started some world history, and then of course you, you get into that in high school and take it for credit, and then if you had a coach, you really don't know anything until you get to college, and you take some kind of uh, uh, Middle Eastern history or some kind of precursor to Western Civ if you went to a liberal arts college, and so you had the Assyrians in sort of northern Mesopotamia, and the Assyrians come in and, and bump off the the uh, the uh, northern kingdom of Israel after uh, Solomon when the kingdom was split up among his sons. The Assyrians sort of knock off uh, the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And then in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians from southern Mesopotamia, he has a world empire and he comes in and demolishes Jerusalem and sort of knocks it out. And of course we know from biblical prophecy before that and then from historical facts that it was 70 years before God's people, once they were exiled in 586, before they returned under the ministry of Nehemiah and, uh, and, and Ezra. And so, but about 605 B.C., to set the table for Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar hasn't wiped out uh, Judah yet, the southern kingdom of Israel. And so he comes over, though, and takes control. They try to make a pact with him. And he takes, uh, he takes the healthy, wealthy, and wise of the aristocracy of Judah and takes them back to, uh, uh, to Babylonia. And so um, Daniel and his three friends that are, that are prominent in the book of Daniel, they're amongst those educated aristocracy of Judah. They're educated, they're handsome, they're fit. Um, and so he takes them back. He wants to educate them in his ways and then turn them lo- loose in his kingdom. And, and they, they do a pretty phenomenal job if, if you're familiar with the story. And so we get into chapter 1 in Daniel. And, and the king, when he gets, uh, this is around 605, 604 B.C., the king gets Daniel and his friends, and he wants to add them to his leadership and educate them in his ways. And he wants to feed them his food and drink, and Daniel's not following for that. God set up strict uh, dietary and hygiene laws, not just for when they were wandering in the wilderness, but for the purity, the physical purity of his people, as well as a symbol of their spiritual purity. And the king says, you're going to eat my food and drink my drink. And then Daniel says, I don't think we are. In verse 8 in Daniel chapter 1, we'll pick up the text. And Daniel says, or the scripture says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't eat uh, um, certain kinds of meat, pork being the most, you know, uh, St. Peter, the Apostle Peter, he hasn't had his pigs in the blanket vision in the book of Acts yet, where God blesses us with bacon, basically, if you've, if you've read uh, 
if you've read the New Testament as well. It's, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture because God delivers us, uh, obviously through the cross and resurrection from legalism, but he, he delivered us from not being able to eat pork like in the New Testament. And I just have to tell you, it's just not clicking with you guys, but pigs are God's greatest recycling program. They can take, uh, they can take something as worthless as a piece of fruit and turn it into a piece of bacon, and it's just amazing uh, what God has done with his recycling program. But we're not there yet. Daniel doesn't want the heavily fermented drink of Nebuchadnezzar's table. He doesn't want the heavy, fatty, nasty foods from his table. And he, he makes a pact with his, his guard, sort of his overseer, and says, we don't want to be defiled. We don't want to follow the king's ways. Verse 9, now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Uh, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There they are, their Hebrew names. Verse 12. Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So we agreed to this and tested them. For 10 days. And you know this story after 10 days, they looked healthier and they were more fit and they were more energetic than any of their peers, Babylonian or Hebrews, that we can speculate didn't follow the principles of God as devoutly as Daniel and his friends did. They, they refused to eat food that had been offered to idols, even if it meant starving. I'm going to ask you this question a few times. Have you made up your mind not to compromise? so that God can really use you? Have you made up your mind not to compromise so that God can really use you? You say, that's no big deal. I, 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 could, do, I could do vegetables and water if God told me to. Or my doctor said, let's get a reset. We're going to do vegetables, fresh veggies, and water for 30 days, 45 days. We're going to get a reset in your system. You're like, I could do that. I could not compromise if God led me to do that. Well, let's go over to Daniel chapter 3. And see if our ability to compromise can be taken to another level. In Daniel chapter 3, we get into a little, a little bit stronger of sim, similar principle. I'm not going to compromise based upon what I think God Almighty is leading me to do. But a, a whole, whole greater consequence here in standing up for this principle. By the time we get into chapter 3, and Nebuchadnezzar is kind of like the Romans eventually. There are all kinds of gods being worshipped in the Babylonian kingdom. And he's got no problem with that, but he says, I'll tell you what, you can worship who you to worship, want to worship, and you can worship how you want to worship, but you're going to bow down to me as your supreme ruler and as your supreme God. And he builds an idol out, out uh, in, at a retreat setting. He builds an idol that's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And he says, wherever you are, if you're in that vicinity, you're off of one of the provinces, one of the villages, and at a certain time, if you hear music in a certain way, you stop what you're doing, you stop whom you're worshiping, or how many you're worshiping, and you bow down in that direction or at that 90-foot tall, 9-feet wide statue, you bow down and worship me first as supreme ruler, and then you can worship who you want to after that. And the people said, all right, we got no problem with that. Their, their society and their religious systems, as false as they were, had been watered down and weakened to the point where they couldn't even tell that they were being defiled even by their own principles. But there were some who could tell. There's some who could tell. 
We get into verse 13 in Daniel chapter 3. And Daniel has heard the news that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are paying no attention to his rules. This may have happened for some time. Certainly it's happened at the big unveiling. And, and Nebuchadnezzar hears from his tattletales in his administration that, um, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are sort of just thumbing their nose at him. They're sort of giving him the spiritual finger, so to speak. In verse 13, he's furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were brought before him. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up for you? Now, we're going to give you another chance, verse 15. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. In other words, those other times will be forgiven. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold, you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was furious. And the consequences are different than a little bloatedness or lethargy or the, the outward consequences of eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine. Of course, for Daniel and these friends and maybe a few others, the consequences were greater on the vegetables and water thing, on the, on the nasty food and nasty drink thing, because they felt convicted by God that they were not to defile themselves outwardly in worship or even inwardly by disobeying God's dietary and hygiene laws. But we get to this text, to this chapter in the prophecy of Daniel, and the consequences of sticking to your conviction are much greater. Nebuchadnezzar's made it clear beforehand by precept. He's made it clear out in his culture and amongst his leadership He's made it clear once more face-to-face -face with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you don't bow the knee when the music plays, you're going into the furnace. I don't know if you can say it this way, and I don't know the Hebrew word, but they, they, sort, of, they sort of told him where to stick it there in verse 17, uh, if, if you can say such a thing in the house of God. There, there's not much stronger words there that can be used, but they sort of just say, not going to happen. In the words of George H.W. Bush, not going to do it, is what they said uh, that day. And they stuck to it, unlike his promise of no more tax increases. And, and uh, verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded, commanded some of his strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up. And throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when those soldiers were consumed by the heat, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell firmly tied into the blazing furnace. Verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly there were, O king. 
He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. You know the rest of the story. He calls them out and says, anybody that speaks ill of the God most high of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will face my wrath. He, he had a total change of heart at that point. Now, if you know the prophecy of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be wishy-washy. He's going he's to lose his mind again literally for seven years when he tries to take God's glory on himself again. The second time, God puts him down with insanity for seven years out in the, in the wilderness, and he, he, he literally becomes like an animal. But here's a point that I want to make. The, the fourth person there, by the way, is what we call in, uh, in theo- our theology, to put a one-word term on it, we call it a Christophany. A theophany is a vis- visitation of God, and specifically a Christophany is a visitation of the second person of the Trinity. That was the Lord Jesus manifested himself in the furnace. He probably manifested himself before they went in because they had no power. Even as godly men, they had no power to keep themselves from being consumed by the heat like those soldiers were. So Jesus showed up before they fell into the fire. He just became visible as they fell into into the furnace. Not only did he protect them from the fire, but we read in the text, they didn't even smell like smoke when when they came out and went face-to-face with the king again. I mean, complete and 100 supernatural, 100% miracle there. Now, here's what I wanted to point out. Daniel, not before the food thing, but afterwards, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at this point, they were living a pretty good, comfortable life. They had everything that they needed. They had places of influence. Their families had comfort and convenience, even though they were in exile and basically slaves. They were high-level slaves and had everything that comfort could offer in the ancient world. But they were willing to stand by their convictions, even if it meant death. Did you catch that? We know the whole story. If you went to Sunday school growing up, you've seen it in pictures, you've seen it on the flannel graph. Nowadays, kids can see it on video or act it out with, with maybe back in the day, remember when puppet ministry was a big deal? Teenagers would come down in children's Sunday school and do puppet ministries. Anybody paying attention this morning? Anybody out there? Puppets? Okay. You, you know this story, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not know of a Christophany at this point. In their lifetime, one hadn't happened. If you go back in timeline the visitations of the second person of the Trinity, one hadn't happened in their lifetime. Now, they, may have, they may have known of the one with Jacob in, in, in their history. Probably they did. But they stand up to the king based on their convictions and say, we are not going to worship you. We believe our God can save us, but regardless of whether he does or not, we're not going to bow down and worship the idol or, or, or get in line with your ungodly principles. They were willing to die. Let me, let me share this with you. Do, you. do you understand what we're what we're saying this morning? There's a difference between your opinions and your convictions. There's a difference between your preferences politically and your and your biblical convictions. And I just want to know this morning. I, I want to say this before I ask you the next one. Your convictions or what you'll, you'll die for, your opinions are what you'll argue about. 
Your opinions are what you will argue about strongly sometimes. Your convictions are what you are willing to die for. How many of you really have some convictions that you're, you're, willing, you're willing to die for like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You're willing to get other people to stand with you like Daniel did that soldier and be willing to die if the king loses his temper based on disobedience. Are you, are you, do you really have biblical beliefs that you're, you're willing to take to the grave? In the early 1600s in England, there were Christians who once again began to hold the conviction that baptism was to be by immersion after conversion. Infant baptism, pouring or sprinkling baptism had been around for hundreds of years. Most, most Catholic little C, Catholic big C cathedrals built around the world before the 1300s at the latest had baptismal fonts for immersion. Most of them, in fact all of them all over the world are full of, of tombs, of crypts. They began to put priests and saints and, and, and knights and noblemen inside these baptism fonts. They used to baptize by immersion, but that went away for about uh, 300 years everywhere and more than that in other places. In the early 1600s in England, they began to be convicted that baptism was only after conversion when you repented of your sins and turned turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus, surrendered to Him to Savior and Lord. Then baptism came by immersion after conversion. And it was textual, the word baptizo, which we transliterate into baptism, literally means to immerse or to dunk. But they also found the really easy part of Scripture that says Jesus, after John the Baptist baptized him, came up out of the water. So you can know the Greek text or you can read the English text, and they got convicted of that. And watch this. They were willing to die for their convictions starting about 1609 in England over the conviction of baptism. They were quartered and hanged and, and drawn and all those other old English terms and burned at the stake and impaled and, and, and all, all sorts of crazy deaths, starved to death for the conviction of baptism. Your opinions are what you'll argue about. Your convictions are what you'll die for. In the mid-1700s, early to mid-1700s in the American colonies, people began to hold the conviction that religious freedom and taxation without representation were non-negotiable. Now, I'll argue with you about taxes. I'll argue with you about roads. I'll argue with you about some of those political convictions that I have. But what are the non-negotiables for us today? As Christians who believe in baptism by immersion after conversion, would we really die for that conviction like our forefathers and mothers in the faith did? Would we really die, stand to die, and face the king over religious freedom and taxation without representation? I don't, I don't know if very many of us in this room would. Some of us have drawn the line for years, and the liberals recently have dug a ditch and a chasm in that line about abortion. But I don't believe abortion is a political issue. I believe it's a scriptural issue. And I, be I believe it's a conviction that we should be willing to die for. We should be able to stand and say, regardless of what happens, the sanctity of the unborn life is 100%. Someone recently said, what if your daughters were raped? Would you let them have an abortion? I said, well, they would 
they're just about both adults. Kinsley's 16. It would obviously be their final say, but I would do everything that I could to leverage them to not kill that baby. My neighbor breaks into my home and robs me and commits a crime at me. Should I go next door to the other neighbor and kill their child because this neighbor committed a crime against me? Say, well, that's not the same thing. I think it is. Scripture makes it clear that it is. Now, would any of us point the finger and set up the scarlet letter in any situation like that? The answer is absolutely not. We would not. Yet by the grace of God go we, right? But what are your convictions? What are your opinions that you're willing to argue about and your convictions that you're willing to die for? I I made a progression here in my notes. I believe in the 2020s. 1600s, 1700s, and the 2020s in the United States of America, Christians will be forced to draw a very distinct line between the sanctity of all human life and the convenient killing of the unborn. You're going to be forced to draw a very distinct line between biblical marriage that is one man and one woman for life, or eventually it's probably going to be one man and a goat as far as, as, far as I can tell. These lines are going to be drawn so heavily that there's going to be a great chasm. And our children who are going to high school and graduating from there this week, and our children who are graduating with bachelor's degrees and master's degree, degrees, many of them over the next 10 years are going to lose jobs if they stand up for their convictions. Social media, anything that they say after, after work at a, at a dinner with coworkers, there's going to be lines drawn, and there are going to be people who are going to lose jobs, they're going to lose homes, they're going to be driven out of communities if they're willing to stand up for their convictions. And it's sad that we've gotten to this point in our, in our culture. And you say, well, we live in Bushland, America. It's, it's not here. It's coming. Texas is about 10 years behind the rest of the country, and Bushland's about 5 to 10 years behind that. We're still standing up and praying. Our coaches probably go baptize in, a, in an ice bath after practice if a kid got saved out here, and everybody would celebrate it whether they go to church or not. But it's coming. And I want to ask you again, what are your opinions and what are your convictions? Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had very strong convictions that made it clear that they would die for those. The men of God in Babylon were willing to die rather than bow down to the idol. The men of God in England were willing to die rather than bow down to the false beliefs of the Church of England. The men of God in the colonies were willing to die rather than bow down to oppression. I want to ask you, will the men of God in this church be willing to die for the sanctity of human life? And for the sanctity of marriage, just two convictions. Just two convictions. I scarce to say that very few of us in this room would die for our convictions. We say we would. Pastor Jeff hands out a theological exam on Sunday morning at the end of a sermon. Most of us could get a 100. Pretty much all of us could get an A or a B. But when it comes our time, to stand before the king of this country, whether he says he's a Christian or not, the system of this country, when it comes down to our convictions versus our opinions, where are you and I going to fall? Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Do we really mean that? I hope that we do. I hope that we do. We need to develop... Quickly, we'll finish. We need to develop convictions in three areas, three key areas. We've got to make up our mind about physical purity, about physical purity and about mental purity. We've got to make up our mind 
about those things in our, in our lives. We thank God on Sunday. Boy, this is convicting. One guy said this, how can you and I justify thanking God on Sunday for dying for our sins and then go out and pay people to entertain us with the sins he died for? Ouch. Are you streaming a Netflix series or an Amazon Prime series or listening to music in the speakers of your car that are really glorifying sin? We need to have some convictions in the area of moral purity. Mental and physical. We need to develop convictions in the area of ethics. I don't know about you, but you ever you ever make a mistake at work and look for somebody to blame? A- anybody besides me? I mean, it comes more natural for some of us than others. What I'm talking about is we need to de- develop uh, the conviction that I'm not going to make any excuses for my Christian behavior or my my work life. I'm not going to make any excuses to my wife, to my kids, to my to my pastor uh, friends, to Pastor Jeff, to our church, to my co-workers. I'm going to I'm going to stand for what's right. When I blow it, I'm going to say that I blew it. Opinion or preference is or, oriented towards convenience, but conviction is oriented towards sacrifice. We've got to develop some convictions in the area of ethics. And lastly, this we've got to develop convictions in the area of spirituality. If we're not following the Lord in the, in the obvious disciplines of the faith, we're not going to be prepared to stand when that line is drawn and that chasm is dug. Did you know if you let your kids and grandkids miss school as much as you let them miss church, they probably wouldn't even know how to read, much less think and solve problems? Isn't that amazing? Well, I don't want to make my kids go to church. Do you make them go to school? Yeah. Do you make them do their homework? Of course. Do you make them take their medicine from start to completion on that antibiotic? I do, but you're changing the subject. Well, I just don't want to, I don't want my kids to, to, you know, when they get older, to be mad at me for making them go to church. I've never heard anybody say, you know, my kids are still really mad at me for making them brush their teeth growing up. Man, and I was just one of those, I was just one of those toothbrush and zealots. I mean, morning and night. You know, I was just, man, I was a mean parent. Isn't that amazing? We've got to develop some convictions versus opinions, folks. In our house, when I was a teenager, you better be in the house and ready to get in bed by 11 o'clock on Saturday night. You know why? Because Sunday is the Lord's day. And we go to the house of God alert and ready to worship. We go to Sunday school and church back in the day. We go to Sunday school and church. If my friend spent the night with me on Saturday night, we were in the house, and we were better to be ready to get in bed at 11 o'clock because we were getting up and having breakfast and going to Sunday school and church at the Carter house. Our house is the same way. I didn't tell Kenzie what time to be home last night. This morning I said, baby, what time did you get home? She, about, she said about 10, 15. I said, good girl, today's the Lord's day. That's what we do. Listen, I want to I finish with this. We've got to make up our mind about about convictions like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and Daniel, and about all sorts of other convictions from the Word of God. We've got to make those up. There are some things we can disagree about. You can disagree about today whether Carrie should have had her head covered when she prayed up here. I mean, there's a verse that says, women, don't pray without your head covered. There's some legalistic denominations, and women always have that head covering on, right? Because they've got to have, have long hair. That's a woman's glory in that verse. They've got to have that head covered when it's time to pray. We still do the other part. We don't do that part. Men, you take your hats off because you don't. men don't pray with your head covered, right? Cowboy churches right now all over, all over America, they got their hats on. Preacher starts to pray, they pull them hats off, right? 
We could argue about that opinion. But there are convictions in the Word of God that we can't argue about. Who's going to stand the truth, even if it means losing your life or your job? I want to finish with this story. It's a true story. In an operating room in a large, well-known hospital, it was a surgical nurse's first day on the medical team. She was responsible that day for ensuring that all instruments and materials were accounted for before completing the final steps of the operation. Towards the conclusion, she said to the surgeon, Doctor, you've only removed 11 sponges. We've used 12, and we need to find the last one. He said, I removed them all. We'll close the incision now. She said, No, sir. I object. We used 12 sponges. There's only 11. The surgeon said, I'll take the responsibility. Suture. She said, You can't do that, sir. Think of the patient. And the surgeon smiled and lifted his foot and showed the nurse the 12th sponge on the floor. He said, You'll do just fine in this or any other hospital. When you know you're right, you don't back down, especially when it's based upon the conviction of the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for this very familiar text. For these heroes of the faith, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These teenage Hebrew young men when they started in this narrative. How they stood for their convictions, were willing to starve, were willing to die for their convictions. God, I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit this morning that myself and very few others of us in the churches around America this morning who revel in the convenience and the comfort and the freedoms of this great country and of of being a part of your family. God, very few of us have convictions that we're really willing to die for. God, I pray that we would continue to stand for our opinions, argue for our opinions, but God, I pray that we would be willing to live a life that says we will die for our convictions based upon the Word of God. Father, we love you and thank you and praise you for this reminder today. And God, help us to pass this word along. It's a very easy text. It's a very easy narrative. It's just powerful. People can argue about politics, but these men of God in this text will, will stand and testify to the power of Almighty God. And Father, as we wind up this service and have a time of, uh, of altar ministry, if there's some folks here today who are convicted, not by me, but by the text and by the Holy Spirit, and they want to just come pray with either of these couples here, God, I pray they'd step out and pray about taking a stand, about, about living a godly life in a world that is just so weakened and watered down by ungodliness and by the devil and by the systems that have been set up in this world. God, when it comes to our time, when it comes time to stand for our convictions, help us to do whatever we have to do to live those convictions out. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from the Church at Bushland. We exist to help people know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. We hope you will stay connected by following the ministry on Facebook and Instagram, by using the Church at Bushland, and on Twitter by using at TCA Bushland.